Hey everyone, it's Brandon Lee, host of the podcast Escaping Rock Bottom, where we talk everything about addiction, recovery, and also trauma. Um, I have wanted to sit down with Dr. Sue Sisley for years. I mean, years I've wanted to sit down with Dr. Sisley um, just because she is so forward thinking and she has been uh, from the very beginning and what she's trying to accomplish by helping people heal from trauma. And um, I, you know what I love most about Dr. Sisley is that she pushes the envelope. When many other people out there in the science world say, wait, what are you doing? This isn't right. Da, da, da. No, she is a true belief system in what she's doing. And uh, I, I'm just so grateful to have you on the podcast. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. And I so appreciate your, you know, your pushing boundaries, especially in the addiction realm. It's so valuable, the messaging you're putting out to the public. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And, and likewise. And, and I remember when I first, gosh, when I first reached out to you, when I first, you know, really heard about you when I moved to Arizona uh, back in 2013, you were so forward thinking about I mean, I laugh about it now uh, because how socially acceptable marijuana has become and the impacts of it. But you are one of the first leading researchers in the entire country to figure out how can marijuana help those with PTSD. Back then, uh, when did that begin for you? Was that like 2008-ish, 2007? About, yeah, it was when, you know, 20 years ago, me and my mom started our medical practice together. And um, we had a large cohort of veteran, military veterans that we were treating. And they were the ones who really first taught me about how cannabis and psychedelics, you know, plant medicine in general, was benefiting them in all kinds of ways. And I was super skeptical. I mean, my mom are both very conservative trained physicians who um, don't believe, you know, at that point, we didn't believe anything was a medicine unless it was approved by FDA. Right. And then, uh, <laughs> when I started, um, you know, I felt that even though I was still dubious, I felt we had a duty to these veterans to study it in a rigorous way. And so that's what led me down this path of, of learning about all the myriad of government barriers to doing this research. I mean, if you dare say you want to study any anything in schedule one, you're going to have to be prepared for a fight. You know, you're going to have a, a big struggle with the government at all levels to do this. You know, these plants have been unfairly criminalized since 1970 when Nixon signed the Controlled Substance Act. And we have it makes it very difficult for scientists to attempt to even uh, to, to begin to study this in a rigorous way. And and, and I will just say this uh, because you, you are such a hero of mine because of the pushback that you received because you were so far advanced at the time um, to what was socially acceptable and not only just socially acceptable but also government acceptable yes. um, and you received a lot of pushback but you continue to push on because you truly believed you believed in it what were your initial results in the studies that you were doing um, with marijuana and a lot of veterans with PTSD what were those what were those findings and what were the result of a lot of that yeah well there was a big difference between the studies we were doing were what they call randomized control trials so it's like the gold standard standard 
for evaluating something as a medicine, but the RCTs, they required that we buy weed from the government, which was very frustrating because the cannabis from University of Mississippi, which was the only federally legal supplier for 50 years, um, that cannabis was so low quality. I mean, it was, most people didn't even recognize it as cannabis. It was so anemic and therefore didn't perform well in clinical trials. So that's part of what motivated us to keep going was that we saw that these studies were sort of being unfairly um, almost sabotaged by this low quality study drug. And, um, and we wanted to fight to, to persuade the government to allow us to use real world cannabis in these trials. And so eventually we were successful, but it took many years of, of, um, you know, bringing thousands of patients to Congress, you know, people power trying to lobby, um, you know, finally, we ended up litigating in federal court. And that was the ultimate success, because we found sympathetic judges there who understood that these attempts by the government to to monopolize the study drug, you know, to say you can only have one federally legal supplier. Uh, it it was like an attack on scientific freedom, you know. It ultimately, you know, p- studies on plant medicine probably will never be successful if the only thing we're allowed to do is use like an isolated molecule to, you know, it, 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 the plant. There's wisdom in the whole plant that can't be replicated when you just isolate one cannabinoid or one terpene. So that's what we were fighting for, to be able to grow our own cannabis and be able to use whole cannabis in trials. Well, that leads me to just this very simple question, which may have a very complex answer. Um, Does marijuana, does cannabis help people with PTS? That we haven't been able to... um, to confirm that in a randomized control trial. So in medicine, unless it's confirmed in these, you know, double blind studies, then it wouldn't technically be considered um, a successful treatment. But um, our observational studies where people were allowed to use real world cannabis, um, those have been really compelling. And so that keeps us motivated to, to keep pursuing this because we feel like there is enough signals in these observational trials where people, you know, it, and it may come to a point where we just, you know, if this next study we do where we're using real world cannabis in a, a randomized controlled trial, if that does not prove to be a positive outcome, we may just have to admit that uh, agriculture, you know, botanical medicines are very difficult to study in controlled trials, and we can never replicate the transformative experiences people are having in the real world. Um, you know, but we have centuries of of stories from you know shamans, medicine men that verify that these plants are medically active, that they do um, exert good positive clinical effects, but it may not be reproducible in a study. And that's something that that's what's so difficult uh, working with the government because there's so many restrictions on um, as long as these medicines are criminalized by our government, it's always going to be really difficult to create real world studies. So uh, it's fascinating stuff. You know, I practice shamanism. I have a shaman um, in from Alaska. And as a matter of fact, uh, later today, I do it weekly. Um, And uh, at 5 p.m. today, I have my my shaman session. Yeah, because it's the one thing that has healed me. Uh, And now, mind you, he does uh, ceremonies as well. Um, He'll use um, ayahuasca sometimes. And, you know, they'll do 
bathrooms in order to really sue to get pe- doctor to get people past the frontal lobe, yes. right? To get people past the frontal yes. lobe, to get them to the lower part of the yes. brain where the trauma memories are stored. Yep. Important in shamanism is the belief that the energy lives in the lower part of our spines yeah. and that we have to process that energy. So really, the psychedelics that he uses really is almost just as a way to get people past the frontal lobe yeah. in order for them to heal people in those trauma, you know, in the traumatic memories. That's so smart. Yeah. I, have you experimented with a lot of different so, psychedelics? So here's the thing that yeah. I have done. I actually do it through deep breath work. Ah. So I'm able through deep breath work to get past the frontal lobe. However, exactly. however, mm-hmm. that leads me to this next, um, this next conversation with you. And this is what I'm so fascinated about because I'm absolutely open and willing to doing this <sighs> is, is, is talking about psychedelics. And we are talking about things like LSD and yeah. things like shrooms yes. um, and microdosing. Can you first talk to me about what microdosing is? Because I think the stigma that we're up against, folks like you and I who are so like, I'm absolutely in favor of using psychedelics to help people heal trauma. Mm-hmm. So how do we get past the stigma? And I think it's explaining what exactly is, we're not just putting mushrooms on a piece of pizza to have a trip, you know, to go out there and have this crazy trip on the beach, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about microdosing as well. What is microdosing? Yeah, I think it's just a way of... um of accessing the material, you know, ingesting mushrooms without having a full hallucinogenic experience. It's like we call, um, uh, I forget the, the term now, it just skipped out of my head, mm-hmm. but it's just, it's just below that where you're still able to enjoy some of the positive benefits. Like they, people do report um, small doses of, of psilocybin, giving them elevated mood, um, maybe increased focus, things like that. All things that we want to study further because we're so interested in the potential to utilize a microdose even on a daily basis and see how people do with that. Um, so um, the, it all still is being studied more vigorously now. We, we finally got our DEA license to grow our own psilocybin mushrooms for research. So that was a big, um, you know, a big push for us because we, you know, the studies that we were seeing were all looking at isolated psilocybin. And we believe that, you know, whole mushrooms may offer more benefit, you know, when you allow um, the, the mushroom to, to reach its full expression in a whole fruiting body, you get the benefit of all these alkaloids and tryptamines that, that can, um, that seem to be working together synergistically the same way we see with cannabis. You know, we talk about whole plant cannabis having that entourage effect where all these molecules working in concert with each other. So, um, so I think, um, that, that's why it was so important, though, to get our own federal license. So now we can grow federally legal whole mushrooms and use them in studies. We can start to um, prepare microdoses, expose patients to escalating doses, starting with the tiniest amount, going up to the highest that they can tolerate to see what is that range that is a microdose. It's really hard to define a microdose. You can read on blogs what people think is a microdose for them. but Right. It's And, uh-huh. and, and each drug hits somebody so differently. Yes. I mean, that's just the, the way the, the, the body makeup is, yes. the science makeup is. Yeah. Um, but let me ask you this. When trauma happens... What does it actually do to the wiring of the brain? 
And then therefore, how can the psychedelics help with that rewiring or help with the with the wiring of the brain to help heal that trauma? I know that's like a really loaded and complex question <laughs> um, because when trauma happens, it impacts it impacts our brain. We think, you know, that when when traumatic memories settle into those structures in the brain, especially the amygdala is a big focus of that. Um, and, and the longer it's um, entrenched in those structures, uh, we think it's, it's harder to, you know, sort of unveil that trauma and bring it to the forefront. So that's why um, there's a lot of interest now in trying to treat trauma as early as possible. Also, you know, um, but the point is that psychedelics seem to enable people by promoting connectedness to nature and empathy and things like that. Um, people seem to be able to um, to sort of confront the trauma, to, you know, allow it to come to the surface. You know, we have so many defense mechanisms in our brain that that push this down, that make sure it stays suppressed so we can be functional from day to day. But ultimately, then the trauma is still stagnating there, still affecting people's day to day. So, so that's why psychedelics offer the most hope for sort of bring you know allowing that to surface in a in a less scary way it's not so intimidating and they can then process trauma um, through you know integration work so that's why it's so important when people hear about these um, like MDMA assisted therapy and other um, studies being done with psilocybin um, we, we worry that people are going to get the idea that they can just go take some MDMA or and so heal like, themselves yeah. no it so, doesn't work that way but I love the I love the language you're speaking because I'm a hundred percent in belief of that and that uh, when trauma happens, we go into survival mode, and that's why we bury it so far back in the lower part of our brains, because naturally our bodies never want to remember it. But we can bury it as far as we want to go, to the point that some people won't even want to remember the trauma. That's how far they bury it, but they have no idea it is still impacting their life today, and it's impacting every decision that they make. And really... I can do it through deep breath where it get past the frontal lobe to the lower part of my brain. Yeah. But if you're with somebody, a trained therapist, yes. a shaman yeah. who knows what the heck they're doing, right? To do a lot of that inner child work to heal yeah. people from the trauma, you know, being able to microdose with them and guiding them, yeah. making essentially making the patient more vulnerable yes. and into being open to talking in a healing way yes. about what they went through. Yes. That's the key is, uh, and that's what's so impressive about you know, your ability to reach that state just with breath work. You just know, breath yeah. work in about eight minutes. That's incredible. I mean, because most of us don't have that kind of skill. So we're, you know, most of our patients are dependent on using a psychedelic to crack that Correct. and be able to, um, you know, expedite their therapy process. Because um, I tell people all the time, there is a huge difference between talk therapy and this kind of therapy that we're talking about. Talk therapy is all frontal lobe. This is all rationalization. Yes. This not tap into the lower yes. part of my brain. You may talk about what happened, but you're not connecting yes. to that real trauma. And that energy is still living in your body. Trust me, I have done years and years of talk therapy. But it's the shamanism yeah. that has allowed me to go back and reprocess 
a lot of the childhood trauma, even adult trauma, right? Yeah. Surviving 9-11 and, right. and, and seeing the things that I experienced on that day, right? As an adult right. at age 21. But it has allowed me to go back and reprocess that trauma as an adult. The only way we can reprocess trauma in that way is to get past the frontal lobe. Yes. And I am of the rarity. And I know that. My even shaman, my, my shaman will tell me, he goes, not many people can do breath work in eight to 10 minutes and be able to drop in the way that you do, which is why... We need to be open to microdosing, yes. um, whether it's LSD or whether it's shrooms or whether it's these other, you know, these other medicines, microdosing them to be able to help a patient crack the cob of the frontal lobe in order to to get back to the lower yeah, part. That's it. Is uh, and it's just so unfair the way these psychedelics have been villainized because villainized, yeah, it's by uh, the government too. And 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 you think about you when we're talking about addictions, it's hard to ignore. That you know the twelve-step community has has really um, seems to have made it their life's work to ensure that these drugs continue to be criminalized, you know, and um, and they they treat they they are promoting the stigma around these drugs by by sort of threatening people in the twelve-step arena that if they use these drugs as a bridge, you know, it's like sort of an exit ramp off these uh, more, uh, you know, severe drugs of abuse that somehow they're violating their code um, of conduct. And it's really unfortunate. I think I wish that they would rethink some of these antiquated ideas. I mean, their own founder, Bill Wilson, has well documented his use of LSD and how it he attributes LSD to being able to maintain his abstinence from alcohol for many decades, and and it wasn't just twelve step alone that was doing. And that's important for for people to be aware of. The twelve step community seems, you know, very adamant that their model, their current antiquated model, is the only one that should move forward. And I would hope there's a day where they can look at the data. That's why we're working so hard to do these studies. I mean, the veteran community always tells me, they're like, Sue, we don't need your studies. Like, we know this works for us. So, hey, thanks for trying. But, you know, we're going to keep doing what we've been doing. And they have all their underground networks where they're right. sharing medicine with each other. Um, so I get that. They they acknowledge that like the studies um, may be helpful for uh, advancing public policy. Like we may see, but even with that, you know, we do studies, and you can see how long it takes. I mean, it took us seven years to get our first cannabis study completed. It's crazy. Um, Meanwhile, it, all these other people are still suffering yes. out there, and they're hurting. And you know, listen, I um, I will always give thanks because uh, I will always give thanks to AA at the very beginning of my recovery. Because Sue, I went to five meetings a week for twelve years. Wow. That is a lot. Wow. All right, so I have a lot of experience. But yeah. the one thing that I I did start to push back on it. I just said, but they never want to advance, yes. right? They never want to update the book, right? right. They never want to update. And, and I'm a huge believer in science. Yeah. I just am a huge believer in science. And, and you know, they do say um, one day there may be a magic pill that, you know, da, da, da. And I'm like, well, maybe that pill does exist. It's, maybe it does. Yeah. And maybe it's science and maybe it is microdosing. And we have to be open to that. And, yeah. you know, one thing um, I had a sponsor one time to say, I said, you don't have a problem with me uh, getting, uh, taking a Xanax. It's prescribed by my doctor. But just because my doctor prescribed me as Xanax, you're okay with that. But here, I, I, I'm i being ostracized for wanting to microdose shrooms or yeah. to, to help me to heal from the trauma because I am of the belief yeah. that 
trauma is the gateway. Yes. Trauma is the gateway to addiction and unhealed trauma is the reason why we numb. So I'm of the belief, well, if that's what I believe, then if we go back and we heal from the trauma, who's to say that that person, once they're healed, can't go out and have a drink again in their life? Because if you're not trying to numb the trauma, but I I have my belief system and my goodness, I get a lot of backlash with that as well. Um, but I'm just a huge believer in science and that we have to believe in science and we have to be forefront in thinking that it's all about trauma yeah. and healing people from that trauma. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it, it's so important that 12-step does evolve over time, that they are able to look at the data. I mean, we're getting... the. I mean, the Matt mo- exists, medical-assisted yes, treatment. It is astonishing the data that my study sponsor maps the nonprofit that's you know promoted all this mdma research for 30 years they have been uh, you know um documenting like two-thirds of the patients in these um, mdma assisted therapy studies two-thirds have no detectable ptsd at the end of these you know about three months of therapy with the MDMA um, assistance. So I'm just saying, like, this is an opportunity for us to cure illness, not just, you know, take Prozac for 20 years and never be healthy. Um, You know, the idea that we can enable people to close that chapter of their life and actually go on to, so I- And be functioning. Yes, that's the key. It's like, that's why I think 12-step is being so short-sighted by dismissing. If they would look at the data that's already been published, it's not a guesswork anymore. Um, We're not speculating. We have data from FDA phase three clinical trials that have for, that have been so compelling, they persuaded FDA to give us breakthrough therapy designation and fast track us through. So the fact that you know twelve step community is not looking at this data uh, it, with a objective um, attitude, you know they're sort of they're they're continuing to wallow in the stigma around this and promote stigma, which you know this judgmental attitude towards psychedelics is harming their own community because. You know, it's interesting, though, because I, I'm, I'm friends, obviously, with the work that I do um, at Art of Our Soul, and I partner with about 15 treatment centers. And, um, you know, you talk to the treatment center owners, right? Even the owners believe in Matt. Yeah. They believe in medical-assisted treatment because yeah. they see it, yes. and they do it, and they'll still go to meetings, right? Yes. They still be, they, but they'll, they'll tell me, they're like, but Brandon, at the same time, this is where I also break with AA, yeah. and that we do believe in science, and we do offer MAT treatment. You know, we do MAT at our treatment centers. Oh, good. So Hopefully. the treatment centers, mm-hmm. most treatment centers are in favor of medical-assisted oh, treatment, you know, understanding that. What I want the general public to understand from my point of view is that we... I wish I would have gone to treatment earlier to use modalities like this yes. because I wish there would be a treatment center that would be, you know, a healing center where yeah. we do use um, psychedelics yeah. in order to help people heal the trauma because I believe that there will be less relapse yes. because I tell people all the time and I see people in here all yeah. the time that have relapsed 15 or 16 times yeah. and I ask them, I said, have you used a modality to help you heal from the trauma? Yes. And a lot of times those who are constant retreads, they haven't, right? They're like, they'll go a year without picking up a drink or a drug, but all of a sudden they'll be triggered and they'll use. Well, you're being triggered because of unhealed trauma. Something is is triggering you because of an unhealed part of you and you want to numb. You want to go into immediate fight or flight. And the ability of us to get somebody to heal their trauma, whether it's microdosing or whatever, 
they'll be less likely to be triggered to numb themselves with a hardcore That's drug. A, yeah, and it's sad because there's still not enough treatment centers that that do, and but there's a few that have been you know, like on the forefront and trying to teach others, but still way too many treatment centers are just warehousing people, like say just revolving door 30 days, they get their payment. The, you know, they, they know that they're not curing anybody and they don't seem to care. And that's why I think it's really sad that, um, you know, I, I hope to see like what you said someday that, treatment centers will incorporate this as a mainstream part not as some kind of alternative um uh, unusual thing but it will become something that insurance pays for that is part of well you know uh, you think back insurance used to not pay for emdr right right. i mean insurance used to not cover that because they thought it was kind of like voodoo-ish they're like how can this really work you know but EMDR does help heal trauma. But again, EMDR, getting people past the frontal lobe to the lower part of the brain in order to unpack a lot of those traumatic memories and reprocess that trauma as an adult. Um, And it's really a lot of inner child work. And I think what, what we're really talking about is getting people to the point to be vulnerable enough to do the inner child work, yeah. to reprocess a lot yes. of that trauma. Yeah. We're not just saying, hey, go take this pill and, right. and and live. Because what you're saying, it's it's assisted with also therapy. Yes. It's it's understanding that it's not just, hey, here's a prescription, go microdose and that and call it a day. Yeah. No, it's here's a prescription, but it's in combination with this kind of a therapy yes. in order for you to really reprocess. Yes, that's really important because we don't want people to take, uh, you know, MDMA at a EDM concert or at a whatever. Concert. No, then, that's not what this is. And I think right. that's the stigma we're fighting. Right. Is we say, you know, we we talk about these drugs and immediately people go, that's what they do at EDM festivals. And all they're doing is being high as a kite. But right. that's not what we're talking about here. It's not. And it's it's so crucial. Um, the, 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 the work that is done afterwards is essential to really fortifying. What's, and, and actually not doing the integration work afterward can be, um, really um, problematic for people. We see all kind of folks emerging from these festivals or retreats with even psychosis and things that they're not able because it's like say it's like doing surgery, leaving the wound open. open. You just um, leave that. There's then so vulnerable to all kind of other things. So it is important. As much as I'm excited that these retreats are sort of changing people's attitudes about psychedelics, they're also um, creating some new problems where people are coming back from the mixing psychedelic sort of haphazardly and so that that's a concern to us so we're trying to find some middle ground we want to eliminate the criminalization of these plants and psychedelics but we want to create um enough education where people know how to use these safely and hopefully we will um, get through phase three trials eventually fda will approve this treatment and then health insurance will cover this. But FDA has been really, you know, blocking us every step of the way. I mean, look, MAPS has been at this for 30 years, and they're only now at the end of phase three. It's crazy. So you can see that Big Pharma still has a stronghold on the way FDA thinks. And um, FDA, half their budget is subsidized by Big Pharma. So it's a real um, struggle for the public who wants access to whole plant, whole mushroom. They don't want the constant chemical onslaught, you know, and I'm not against big pharma. I think they're 
they make a lot of medicines that are essential, but they need to stop blocking research like this because we need to have studies and they're doing everything they can to systematically impede this type of research because they feel so threatened by this. I mean, our the problem with this treatment is it actually puts people into remission, right? It's It could be a potential cure for people. And from big pharma standpoint, that is a problem because they don't want to cure people. They want you to be stuck on their pharmaceuticals for years and years and, and be completely dependent and be riddled with all these side effects. Um, and that's why people are voting with their feet and turning away from chemical pharma stuff and wanting natural alternatives that are safer, less toxic, all that. Yeah. Um, so at your, as we begin to close this episode, from the studies that you have seen with people, you know, microdosing. Yeah. What have you seen? I mean, we've seen some extraordinary stories from folks, but not just them, from their family, too, corroborating that they are, you know, much more high-functioning. They, they're more forward-thinking. They have hopefulness. If they're suppressed, you know, if they're attempting to dampen cravings from addiction, that that is like the first time that they're reporting they don't have a desire to go use whatever it is, whether it's, you know... Um, whatever nicotine or sugar or sex or gambling whatever their addiction is it seems like microdosing is helping dampen those urges and that's what we talk a lot about the neuroplasticity idea but the fact is these psychedelics even in microdosing are changing people's brains they're reformulating the way they think they're changing the connections and they're therefore then changing behaviors where you're not seeing these sort of either drug seeking behaviors or other um, you know maladaptive behaviors that they're trying to get rid of so it's exciting I mean we saw the first grant recently the first large grant looking at psilocybin for treating nicotine addiction I think they, the John, uh, Matt Johnson at Hopkins got like four million dollars wow. to do a comprehensive trial and this is a great signal for how if if it suppresses nicotine addiction then potentially all these other addictions could get benefit as well because they're all mediated through those same neurotransmitters in our brain so uh i think this will create you know the data from this will be really important so um dr sisley where if people want to read up on more research where can they go yeah i would say that's a great question on psychedelics because you're with the scottsdale research institute yes so we have but we don't have as much of a like a resource library on there as i think the best place in my opinion is to go to maps.org because um they have a lot of great um you know, they've created an online library of all kinds of research on everything from ibogaine to, you know, all kinds of, mostly focused on MDMA. But once you start there, that'll put you into a whole other realm. Of, oh, oh, yeah. A big abyss. Yeah. A big abyss of talking about this stuff. Well, uh, Dr. Sisley, thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you for the research that you're doing. Continue to do it. We need, uh, honestly, we need forward thinking people like you um, because they're, is a lot people don't even I don't even think we've understand the depths of just the trauma of going through a pandemic for two years and the amount of trauma that that has been Um, and I think we're going to really start seeing the fallout of that for years and years and years to come so we need this forward thinking we need people out there like you experimenting and really being forward in in advance and you're thinking about how we can use medicine to help people with their trauma so thank you for coming on Um, it's, it's so great to have you here and we'll see you back here for the next episode of Escaping Rock Bottom Bottom.
perfect. Oh, good. I am so glad that we um, were able.